Good morning on this rainy Thursday morning. Glad you fought the elements made to men's Bible study. One of the great concerns of the gospel of Christ is that a new human community be created where we not only tolerate each other, but we actually become like family with each other. This is one of the great ambitions of the gospel of Jesus Christ is to deal with the human divisions in the world. And it's quite an ambition because when you look around the world at how other folks are trying to bring about this unity, you can see the great difficulty of accomplishing that. For example, uh, you can see how the former Soviet Union tried to bring unity in the Soviet Union. How are they going to be united in the Union? Well, by fear and intimidation and by co-opting neighboring nations to keep resourcing a failed state. And you can look at the Soviet Union now. We just say, how's that communist approach to unity working for you? And then you can come all the way to the West where we are and see how we're trying to do it through giving equally everybody individual freedom. That's how we're to bring this thing together. Everybody's free. How's it working for you? Just listen to the rhetoric. Watch the actions of those who are in this community together. We seem to be fragmenting more severely as every decade goes by. The gospel claims to have the answer to bringing about reconciliation among men and unity among the peoples of the world. It's a great concern of the gospel. If, you, if you're from second, you know, most of you are not, but those of you who are, you know that we've been studying John's gospel and we got to John 17 and we, we got to listen to Jesus pray. You know, we're told that the Lord's prayer is our Father who art in heaven and so on. That's actually the Lord's prayer that he taught us to say. But the Lord's prayer that he actually prayed for himself is in John 17. And in John 17, you can see the overriding concern of the Lord Jesus Christ on the night before he was crucified. What did he pray for? He prayed for God to be glorified primarily through the unity of his disciples. What a huge prayer that was. And it surprises us, maybe especially Protestants who don't seem to specialize in unity. It seems to surprise us that the chief concern was the unity of his people. You go to Ephesians chapter 4. You remember when we studied Ephesians a few years ago, the first three chapters are largely doctrinal. The latter three chapters are largely practical or ethical. So where is he going to start when he gets to the ethical section? When he says, now live a life worthy of the calling that you've received, the calling that's revealed in Ephesians 1 through 3. Live a life worthy of that. So where does he begin? He says, keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That's the first concern that he lines out in Ephesians 4. And all the sexual concerns, the uh, controlling your anger concerns, the marriage and family and workplace concerns, all that comes out of that, of keeping the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. It's amazing how important the unity of believers is for the Lord Jesus Christ and His apostles. And there are reasons for that, and we'll even see them in our text today. So the gospel is making this huge claim to be God's secret to bring about the unity of believers. And therefore, that being the case, we have to work on it. We have to take this to task. We have to be sure that we are actively, consciously, intentionally implementing one of these great ethical concerns of the gospel. When we start doing church, we realize there are a number of things that tend to separate us. One of the most obvious is personalities. You just kind of like who you like. 
and you tend to treat those you like, like family, and those you don't like, well, you just don't treat them much at all if you can avoid them. And then certainly other things divide us, like socioeconomic conditions. If you live in a certain house and drive a certain car and have a certain education and have certain privileges to travel, you like to muck it up with people who do the same. And so we just kind of, you know, birds of a feather flock together. We just kind of like to hang out with people who can do the same things that we do. And sometimes we despise people from other socioeconomic classes, if you'd call it that. If you happen to have money, you look down on these lazy people who don't have any. If you don't have money, you look, look down on these arrogant people who have it all and don't seem to be sharing very much of it. And tremendous rivalries can develop. And the history of the world shows that political divisions often line up along economic classes. And then, of course, we have race issues, ethnic background issues, where we find in this fallen world uh, that people cluster around racial identity. And we find that the gospel comes and says, no, we're going we're gonna to take a whack at that. And we're actually going to create family unity among all of these divisions. In the history of redemption, you can see that the world tried to bring unity back in Genesis chapter 11. We're going to build a great nation here. We're going to have a, we're going to have a unity of religion here. We're all going to worship the same God and we're going to build this huge tower uh, so that we can make our way to God. And the Tower of Babel they tried to build and, and then what happened? God dispersed them because they were working against his purposes. And then what happens when Abram is called in the next chapter? He's told that God will bless him and all the nations through him. So we're going to redo the Tower of Babel. It's not going to be built the way secular men would tend to build it. We're not going to build a nation with that kind of unity. We're going to unify around the call of God upon his people. And ever since that call... It's been the call upon the church to build unity. Now you'll see the same thinking in Romans. For eight chapters, we had laid out before us a, a, an exquisite doctrinal presentation so that we can understand the big picture of humanity, how we got in the trouble that we're in and what God's solution for it is. And behind the scenes, we can see how God is sovereignly working his purpose out and we can trust him. But then you notice when we got to Romans 9 through 11, he starts talking about this sociological phenomenon in the Roman church. And in Rome, the Jews and the Gentiles were not treating each other just right. And he lays out a doctrinal foundation for why they come to the same place. They all come to the cross for salvation, Jew and Gentile. The Jew has no claim on God that the Gentile doesn't have as well because they both come through the gospel of God's grace. Nobody earns it. He builds that theological foundation. Then what does he do when you get to Romans 12? He says, okay, let's talk about the ethical implications of this gospel. Same things that he's doing in Ephesians chapter four. And where does he start? He starts with love. They were to offer our bodies as living sacrifices and then he launches into how we're to learn to love each other. We have to learn. We have to unlearn some things that we learned from the world and then we learn some things we never knew from the Bible. And when we got to Romans 14, we saw that Paul had already addressed the issue of dealing with our enemies, how we're not to return evil for evil, how we're even to deal with an evil state and submit ourselves to all the governing authorities, how we're to think about the future and submit ourselves to the hope of the future. But then he says, look, even among you, there are some of these niddling little things, piddly stuff that you argue over and divide over. And that's got to cease. And he spoke about the weak and the strong. The weak are those who's, who probably had more of a Jewish conscience and their conscience was bound to keep the dietary laws, which God had clearly abolished with Peter in Acts chapter 10 and 11, we see that God had said to him, don't call unclean what I've called clean. All these animals are available to you now. So he was, God was showing us that the Old Testament dietary laws had elapsed. 
but some Jewish consciences were still bound to it. And Paul says, is that a reason for you all to divide up? Is that a reason for you all to sit at different tables and act like you're not brothers? No, he says, you who are strong, that is those of you whose consciences are released from the dietary laws, mostly Gentiles who weren't brought up that way anyway. They felt free. He says, don't look down upon the weak. And those of you who are weak, don't despise or curse those who are strong. Don't judge them because their consciences should be free. And Paul claims himself to be one of strong conscience, even though he's Jewish. So he identifies with the Gentiles. Do you see his strategy? He's Jewish and he positions himself arguing for the Gentiles. So he says, these things that tend to divide people, you've got to deal with this in the church. Now, this has enormous macro implications for how we do church. And that's not our task today. Our task today is to look at the realm in which you're living. Okay, so you're not the Pope. You're not a denominational head. Most of you are not pastors. So you're not going to be re-architecting the church for us. But what about your personal relationships? All of them. How are you addressing the situations in your life? And we all start where we are. We all make a contribution to this. And that's the reason the Apostle Paul is writing the whole church. Each one of us has a role to play where we are. And we are to be actively breaking down these barriers as God gives us grace to do so. That's where the argument comes to in chapter 15. And here in these first 13 verses that we're going to study this morning, Paul is wrapping up his argument. And in that argument, he brings us some very important details and some very important theological underpinnings. Remember, Christians are not people who just do do some things and don't do some other things. That's true of us, but we are people who do them for a particular reason. We're all theologians. Christians thoughtfully, reflectively do what they do and don't do what they don't do. It's for reason, for cause that we do these things. So Paul is giving us a robust Christian motivational framework for why we live toward one another the way that we do, contrary to the way the world does it. And then, of course, you'll find as we next week as we come to verse 14, Paul then launches out into his mission. He's going to talk to the Romans about how he's going on to Spain and how important it is to take the gospel to the world. But notice he starts with the church. What good does it do for us to go to the world and export our own divisions in the world? Let's get the church right where we are. And then when we go around the world, we're exporting health and not uh, sick divisions. Well, let's look at verses 1 through 13 and take them apart for a few moments and try to apply them to our lives so that we are actively engaged in this chief concern of the gospel. Verse 1. We who are strong, notice how he says we, so he's calling himself a Gentile here in a certain sense. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy, as it is written. Therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it is said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. 
In Him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Okay, first of all, in verses 1, one and 2, Paul is reminding us that we must bear with one another. He says, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. He doesn't just say the differences of the weak, the failings. So you who are strong, you know you're right. You who know you can drink a glass of wine without a guilty conscience, you know you're right. And there are some that don't agree with you. Bear with their failings because that means they're wrong. You are free to drink a glass of wine. But bear with their failings in their weakness. That's a strong statement Paul is making about his Jewish brethren. That their consciences are underdeveloped. Bear with them in their underdeveloped consciences. And he says, look at verse 2 and you get here the heart of this commandment. He's saying, in your love, you must seek to please your neighbor for his good in order to build him up. This is a huge statement. I want us to notice, first of all, what he's not saying. He is not saying that this is at the expense of the gospel. It is not at the expense of the gospel. He's not saying, I want you to give up truth in order to please other people. He's not saying, I want you to violate your conscience in order to get along with people. He's not saying, I want you lovingly to include everybody in the, in the church, including the heretics. He's not saying that. We don't include or express our love at the expense of the truth of the gospel. And if you want an example, uh, all you have to do is turn to Galatians chapter 1. It says Galatians 6 through 19. Galatians doesn't have 19 chapters, so it's chapter 1, verse 6. Look at this with me. And this, of course, seems to be Paul's first letter. He says in Galatians 1, verse 6, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. So when it has to do with the truth of the gospel, perverting the gospel, he gets very strong. Doesn't seem to be abiding by his standards here, does he? He's not pleasing his neighbor, is he? Look, keep reading verse 7. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. He's saying, let him be damned. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Now, the false gospel that was being preached was that you must be circumcised if you're to be a believer. So this Jewish biblical custom of circumcision must be applied to everybody. You can understand there's a lot of the line on this theological discussion. And Paul later says, may those who are preaching that be emasculated. In other words, forget the circumcision, why don't you whack them off? I mean, he uses very strong language here. So we can see that Paul is not a sentimentalist. He is not sacrificing truth for unity. Unity is actually created through the truth. Turn over one more book to Ephesians uh, chapter 4 that we were discussing. And in this discussion on unity, notice how Paul puts it. He says... Uh, in verse uh, 15, rather, this is chapter 4, verse 15, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. And literally he just says, truthing in love. Truth and love go together. If you separate truth from love, it becomes sentimentality. If you separate love from truth, it becomes harshness. But truth in love, that's the key. So first of all, now back to our text. 
Romans 15. He is not suggesting that we bear with one another at the expense of the truth of the gospel. That's very clear. You can see, for example, if we were to look in Galatians chapter 2, he even confronts Peter over this. Peter was separating himself from the, from the Gentile brethren because they were eating of food that wasn't suitable for the Jews. So Peter separated himself and went over and ate with the Judaizers. Paul called him out in public. That's one apostle to the other. So that's how serious Paul takes truth. So you never sacrifice truth for the sake of unity. They, they go together. And Paul has demonstrated that. Now, secondly, we don't please other people for ourselves. This is not for ourselves. Paul says in Ephesians 6, in our work, we don't please our master just to be men pleasers. And in, it should be 1 Thessalonians 2, 4. He says that we're not men pleasers. He said, did I just come to please you? No, he came to speak the truth. So we're not just trying to win friends and influence people, if you will, in order to expand our influence or to enlarge our kingdom or our pleasure. It's not about us. And Paul's not suggesting that at all. We don't bear with one another so that we can make the claim that we have more friends and everybody likes us. Thirdly, when he says to bear with one another, it's not just to endure or to tolerate each other, but to bear each other's burdens. Sometimes we think we're doing quite well, and I have to admit with some people you are doing quite well, if you can just get along with them. Maybe you're one of those. If someone can just tolerate you like your wife, that's a good day, you know. But what Paul is saying is far more than that. It's not just tolerating each other. We're to bear one another's burdens. Uh, I mentioned here uh, Matthew 8, 17. You don't need to turn there, but, but Matthew quotes an Old Testament text that he will take up our infirmities and bear our diseases using the same word. So when Jesus died for us, he took up our burdens and he, he took the responsibility to discharge the burden of our sin which was to pay the penalty for it. That's what it means to take up a burden, to help someone carry the load. Uh, and you'll see in Galatians, you can turn back over to Galatians for just a moment, and here you see a, a, a very significant text where the Apostle Paul is talking about somewhat the same thing. And it has to do with restoring each other. Look how he puts it in Galatians 6. He says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression... You who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. And then look at verse 2. Bear one another's burdens. There's the word. And so fulfill the law of Christ. So clearly, at least one thing that it means, shown to us in Galatians 6.2, is that we take up the concern for each other's spiritual welfare. And you know how difficult your spiritual life is. And you say, you know what? I got my hands full. I mean, I'm enough for one person to handle. But in the gospel, no, you're not enough. You join Christ's church and that family's spiritual burdens, the need to be restored to God in their spiritual lives, to be restored to each other, that all becomes your burden. And that's what it means to take up the burden. So when you become a believer, you join the church of Jesus Christ by necessity. There's no such thing in the Bible as an individual Christian floating around who's not committed to the body of Christ. No example anywhere. Doesn't exist. So when you become a believer, you become part of his team that's following him. And when you do that, you then take on the responsibility to assist these people in their relationship with Christ and their relationship with one another. And I can just tell you, if you when you do that, you'll find that you have some tremendous burdens on your plate. You take those up. That's, that's what it means to exercise gospel ministry toward one another. And then fourthly, lastly here under Roman numeral number one, it's not just negatively, but positively. In other words, we don't just take up 
the burden of not liking somebody and try to like them. But positively, we invest in each other's lives to build them up. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 that he becomes all things to all people in order that he might win some. And then in 1 Corinthians 10, 33, he says, I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many that they, but that of many, that they may be saved. So Paul takes up the burden of being sure everybody gets home safely. And when you do that, you sacrifice yourself. Naturally, taking a burden, it's heavy. You feel like you're going to wear out. You're going to have to have help from God to carry people's burdens. So when you're aware that someone is at odds in your church with each other, that becomes your burden. Sometimes if you don't know them very well, it means you're just going to pray for them. If they happen to be very close to you, that means you intervene with both of them. And you're always seeking to bring people together. That's your responsibility. You're not doing extra credit when you try to help people get along with each other. That's not extra credit. That's Christian experience. That's how the body works. That's the reason the gospel does bring unity because the whole blooming church is trying to help everybody in the church to have a healthy relationship with each other. To do anything less than that is not to enter the gospel ministry. It really is true. That's the reason that it gets emphasized. It's so important. Now, secondly, let's look at why we do this. And the rest of this text that we've studied, verses 3 through 13, is the why. And it's so helpful because we're resistant. I don't want to stick my nose in somebody else's business. My burdens are enough. I don't have time for you. I've got all kinds of excuses not to. So you better give me a lot of teaching on this. You better preach at me. And that's exactly what Paul does. He's now going to preach at us as to why we do this. And here's why. We must bear with one another because of Christ. It's because of your relationship with Christ. And he presses his point here. First of all, he says, for Christ did not please himself. He didn't come here and say, hey, this will be cool. Let me walk around these poor people and just kind of see what the planet is like. You know, I heard from the angels that this thing fell and I just want to visit and see, well, how bad is it really? You know, how poor are these people really? Uh, maybe I can just go down and preach to them a little bit, give them a little uplift. No, he came down here completely contrary to his own personal convenience and comfort. Not to please himself, but to please other people for their good. That's the reason he came. And he quotes Psalm 69. And this is a common, commonly quoted psalm in the New Testament. I've listed several places there where allusions to Psalm 69 are made. This psalm of David. And of course, David was oppressed and persecuted and all the rest. And David took on the reproaches that belonged to God. You know, when the Goliath was challenging the Israelites, he, he challenged their God. And that's what provoked David as a, a little teenager with his five smooth stones to go tackle this giant because his God had been offended. And in that psalm, David says, the reproaches that fell on you, O God, fell upon me. So David says, I took the reproaches that people were giving to God. And so what Paul is saying, do you see what Jesus did? He came in and substitutionally took our place and he took the reproaches of the, the, the wicked place upon God and took it upon himself. And then he also, what did he do? He took the reproaches from God that came upon us and took those upon himself. What a savior. So he says, the first and most important reason that we enter into this ministry is because this is precisely what Jesus did. And we are in love with him. We adore him. We want to imitate him. Well, imitating that. And he was doing this his, with his whole life. So if you're walking in his steps, you are a peacemaker. You're a burden bearer. You're constantly looking for ways in which you can help unify the body by carrying the burdens that pertain to the body. And of course, when you do this, at least temporarily, oftentimes what I've found is when you enter into a dispute between two brothers, <laughs> you're usually going to have two people who previously thought you were a pretty cool dude 
neither of whom now like you. <laughs> you end up losing the affections of two people when you enter into these things. You've noticed this. And that's one reason we don't like to do it. It's not good for business, by the way. So everybody's tempted to stay away from the, from the fireworks, you know. Just go hide under a bush somewhere. Try to keep yourself out of trouble. But what the gospel is saying is you enter into that as a, a brother of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, notice verse 4. This is sort of a parenthetical statement, but a very important one. Paul has quoted the Old Testament. And he's saying, can we just call a timeout just a moment? Let me just say a word. May let me make a public service announcement about the Old Testament. That you Gentiles especially need to realize, you need to study the Jewish Bible. You need to study the Old Testament. Because the Old Testament, he says, is there for our encouragement, is there for our instruction, so that we would have endurance and the encouragement that we need, so that we might have hope. The Old Testament he's talking about. So he quotes the Old Testament. He says, let me tell you why I quoted the Old Testament. Because it's true and it's our book and you Gentiles need to understand something. Although you don't have the nice darker skin that we have and you don't have the nicely shaped noses that we have and you don't have the customs that we grew up with, you crazy wild olive tree Gentiles, you are the heirs of everything in the Old Testament. You are the ones who are the heirs of the promises to Abraham. You're the children of God. So you've been grafted into this family. So this Old Testament is your family book. You need to learn it. It's about you, not just about Jewish people. It's about God's people and you've been grafted in. So he's making a little advertisement here for the Old Testament. Read your Bible, he's saying. It's your book. And he says, here's what happens. When you read it, you get instructed. And when you're instructed, when you combine that with endurance, it leads to hope. So you notice the little formula here. Scriptural encouragement plus endurance leads to hope. And furthermore, you, you notice from the, other, the apostles' other statements, I've listed here 2 Timothy 3.16, all scriptures God breathed. What scripture is he talking about? The Old Testament. The Old Testament is God-breathed. It's useful, he says, for teaching and rebuking, training and righteousness. It's useful. Use it. So learn all your Bible. Now, when you come to Romans, and I've listed several texts here, and let's just for a moment uh, walk through the, the, some of these texts. Look at Romans chapter 1. Right at the very beginning, you'll remember we talked about this. Paul says, I'm a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, verse 2, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. He's saying this gospel is not just a New Testament phenomenon. This is an Old Testament gospel. That's where it was first revealed. Not in its fullness as we have it now, now that Christ incarnated has come. But we had it in the Old Testament. Look at chapter 3, verse 21. Similarly, he says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. So the gospel is revealed apart from obedience to the moral law of God. However, he says, this gospel came from the prophets, the law and the prophets in the Old Testament. So we could see other texts and it's throughout the scriptures where it's clearly shown to us that the gospel was rooted in the Old Testament. So nice little sidebar there, theological sidebar that he gives the Romans when he's talking about how the Old Testament, Psalm 69, speaks to what Christ did for us. So we're following Christ. This is what he did. Then B, look at verses 5 through 12, this big section. Here he says, that not only Christ came to suffer for us, to take the wrath of God for us, but Christ came to unite us in glorifying God. And all the way from verse 5 through 12, he's showing us Christ's big strategy in suffering for us and taking the wrath of God for us. So there's this vertical intention of the gospel, and then the gospel has a horizontal intention. 
So Paul's showing us the dynamic of Christ's life. If we're following Christ, it has two fundamental directions. It's reconciliating in the vertical sense and it's reconciliating in the horizontal sense. And if you're a follower of Christ, you're engaged in both. You're seeking to help men be reconciled to God and you're seeking to help men be reconciled to one another and to enjoy gospel community. You have to teach them how to do that. Just like you have to teach your children how not to hit their little sister over the head with the pistol, which is what I did with my big sister one day and got clobbered for from my daddy. Why did he clobber me? You don't hit your big sister on the back of the head with a play pistol and make her cry. You treat your sister gently. You have to train knuckle-headed little sinners like myself how to love people. There's a discipline that goes with this. Sometimes we get punished when we violate the standards. Sometimes we big kids need to be disciplined by one another to train us how to get along with siblings. I'm serious. We're just as bad. Uh, so Christ came to do that. Then Christ came to unite us, verses 5 through 12. Now, first of all, we're going to see that he puts, gives us another nice little uh, sequence here. He shows us how, he says, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice or one mouth literally glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. So you see the sequence here. God gives us the gifts of endurance and encouragement that he's just spoken about in verse 4. Those are gifts from God. He gives you endurance, perseverance. That's a gift from him. He gives you encouragement from the scriptures. Why? So that we'll live in harmony. So you have encouragement and endurance in order to live in harmony. And why do you have harmony? So that you'll have one voice. Why do you have one voice? So that you can praise the Lord. Now, some of you are in the choir. And if you have a good choir master, like those of you at Second Presbyterian do, he doesn't tolerate disharmony. Have you noticed this, Dan? He doesn't tolerate disharmony. Now, I haven't heard you all be disharmonious very often. And I know there's a reason for that. Back in that choir room, you get beat up, right? If you're out of harmony, there's going to be a word for the maestro. And he's going to calm down the, the sopranos and he's going to, Tell the basses to bring it this way. He's going to get everybody together. Think what the ears of God must be like. First of all, they're very tolerant. <laughs> we know this because we're the ones who do the singing. So he's tolerant. Make a joyful noise. And we do. But his ears to his children's love for one another are very sensitive. And he is constantly orchestrating his family to get along with each other. I remember in my dad's later years, uh, one of his common themes would be <clears throat> for us siblings to look out for each other. And the way he established his little estate was that there would be absolutely no difference among the children that, so, because he didn't want any possibility of jealousy to come into the family. So everything was scrupulously divided equally among all the children. So that, that's in his will and testimony and, and his encouragement to us to get along. You know how daddies are. I'm the same way with my kids. I want them to love each other, support and encourage each other. Imagine how our daddy in heaven feels about his family. He wants us to get along. He's scrupulous about being sure that we know that the code of ethic in our family is to love and care for each other and to be loyal to each other. So he is giving us encouragement and the gift of endurance so that we might be harmonious, so that we might have one voice, so we might praise him. You can also see in Philippians, he wants us to contend together for the gospel. So we have one voice. He says, standing as one man. So we have one voice to the world and we have one voice to God. That's the general outcome of a family that is harmonious together. There are all kinds of challenges to this, gentlemen. There are people who say catty things about one another. And you're trying to decide, should I correct my brother or not? Should I just let that go over my head? And you've got a big decision to make. 
And the way your internal grid is working, you're thinking, am I close enough to him to go ahead and confront him? Will he understand what I'm saying? And then you're also asking yourself, is this a pattern in his life that needs to be addressed? Or is this just a one-off episode that I don't expect to be repeated? You're, You're kind of doing all the calculus in your head when you're wondering about what you should do. But one thing for sure you should do is carry the burden of your brother. And that means at least you're praying for him. You're longing for him to be a unifier and not a divider. This is a gospel issue. And then look how Paul puts it. First of all, in verse 8, he says, Jesus clearly came for the Jews. And he came because he was showing God's truthfulness, or the word could be translated faithfulness, in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. God said to Abraham, I'll be your God and the God of the generations after you. And he said over and over again to both Abraham and Isaac, as well as Jacob, I'm going to be a God to you and your children. So the Jews knew they were children of Abraham. They were the recipients of God's promises. And in chapter 9, we looked at this very carefully constructed theological argument to show how God had not broken his promises when he takes it to the Gentiles because the Jews had rejected the gospel. Paul's very scrupulous about laying out that theological framework. But he says, first of all, God has kept his promise to the Jews. And Christ came to fulfill that promise to Abraham and all of his seed, his physical seed. But then look in verse 9, he says, and you Jews don't forget, and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. So we see not only that Christ was a burden bearer in the sense that he took the wrath of God on our behalf, but he came to bring two divided people, probably the greatest division in the history of of the world, the Jew and Gentile. He came to unite two people who couldn't stand each other, who despised each other, and he came to make them family. And he says to the Jews, yes, indeed, he came to fulfill his promise to you. But he came also to the Gentiles, those who were left out. And look at the language here. He quotes from various places in the Bible, Deuteronomy, Psalms, 2 Samuel, Isaiah. He's quoting from all over the place, saying to the Jews, have you forgotten something? Do you think this idea of including the Gentiles is a New Testament idea? Are you kidding? Have you read your Bibles lately? And he goes from the Pentateuch to the historical books, to the Psalms, to the prophets. And in every section known to the Jew in his Old Testament, in his Torah, Paul quotes, this is what God promised, that it would be for you and the Gentiles, and you've forgotten that. And sometimes people in this country, in their devotion to America, they sometimes wrap up the Bible with their flag, and they think they're being completely devoted to Jesus Christ when they are completely devoted to their own country. And they've equated patriotism with obedience to the Lord in the Great Commission, forgetting that we have brothers and sisters in our eternal family, that we have a citizenship that is in heaven, not here, and we are brothers and sisters with them, and there are many of them yet to be reached in foreign places. We forget that. Why do we forget it? Well, it's convenient to forget it. And it was convenient for the rabbis and their followers to forget the great calling of God upon Abraham. And you can look at those texts Uh, in the Old Testament, the ones under verse 8 there, number 1, he came for the Jews, whether it's Genesis 12, 3, 18, 18, 22, 18, 26, 4, 28, 14, all of them. When God gave his promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and what did he say? And all the nations will be blessed through you. In every case, when he called the patriarchs, he called them to be patriarchs of the nations. And they forget it. It's convenient to forget it but Paul doesn't let them forget it. Now notice in verses 9 through 12, would you look at that with me for just a moment? There are several words that are used here. It's just an amazing litany of verbiage to talk about praise. In verse 9, you have the word glorify, and then the word praise, and then the word sing, and then in verse 10, rejoice. Verse 11, praise, a different word. And then the word extol in verse 11. You get the idea? Here's what Paul's saying. Jesus came to bear the burden of our sin. He came to build this community. And what is this community going to do? 
What is the great end of the unity? Is to have one voice to praise God together. To me, this is one of the most delightful passages in all of Romans because what we have is a picture of what Jesus is doing at the end. Where does Jesus get his satisfaction from the great work that he's done? He seems to get his satisfaction by being the choir director at the very end of the day. He's the one who's orchestrating this great chorus of praise to God. And he seems to be the one that's directing it. He's for sure the one that's recruited the choir. He's recruited Jew and Gentile to come into this great praising group before the Lord. Now, that's one thing that if you, most churches now don't have choirs, but if you have a choir, that's one thing they're supposed to remind you of. Uh, they're supposed to remind you of the heavenly choir. Now, some of you say, boy, our choir has a long way to go, you know. But they're supposed, when, we, when we just look at them, you know, they're all up there robed, singing in harmony, singing beautiful pieces. And we imagine, use your imagination, one day we're all going to be robed with white linen. We're going to be the people of God, the saints, and we're going to be all singing beautifully, more beautifully than you've ever heard before in your life. And that will be the grand expression of the unity that Christ has come to bring. So our, our worship is important. And our worship in unity with one another is important. This is the issue that's being driven here. Then you'll notice that in verse 13, lastly, Christ came not only to suffer for us and to unite us in glorifying God, but he came to give us hope. Now this is what's really interesting about unity. Unity actually, in a certain way, has, has a tendency to generate hope itself. This is strange to us. But Paul, you know, speaks about hope in Romans 8. He says hope is what we don't have yet. If you had it, it wouldn't be hope and you wouldn't have to wait for it patiently. But because you don't have it yet, you have to wait patiently. That's what hope is all about. It's about believing in something you haven't received yet. So hope is, is absolutely essential to the Christian life. We can't suffer without hope. We can't work hard without hope. If, if we have no hope of things turning out well at the end, what's the use of all of this? So the Christian can't function without hope. What Paul seems to be suggesting in this verse is that our efforts to produce unity among the brethren actually leads us to hope. See how he says it. May the God of hope, he's the God of hope. He's the source of hope. The God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. So you see here, you have the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit gives you the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Here he mentions joy and peace. So you receive the Holy Spirit in your conversion. The Holy Spirit gives you joy and peace. And what does your joy and peace do? Well, so that, here's a purpose clause, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. So when you receive the Holy Spirit and you are expressing the fruit of the Spirit in joy and peace, peace with God, peace with one another, then you will abound in this rich hope that inspires us to endure and to keep going. So our endurance leads to hope. You can pick this up also in Romans 5, can't you? Our endurance produces hope, but then our hope gives us our endurance. <laughs> you say that sounds very circular. Yeah, it is often that way, isn't it? Because ultimately it comes down from above. With us, it's circular this way, but it's all coming from above. This is another reason why the church must be a new community. Because it's the new community that gives hope to all of us that God is at work in this generation and is taking us to the new heavens and the new earth where hope will be turned into physical, visible reality. So here is then Paul's exquisite explanation for our social behavior. We don't just act a certain way. We're acting a certain way for a given reason that Christ has come to take up our burdens. Christ 
has come to unite us. Christ has come to keep us through hope. And the way that He keeps us is by putting us into a family that is learning how to love each other. There's nothing worse than for God to be drawing someone to Him. And then that person comes into one of our churches. And because he's excluded and not loved, he loses his hope and leaves that church. Nothing more contrary to the gospel than that. No, it's the unity of brothers that gives hope to one another. And that hope one day, gentlemen, is going to turn into reality. And we're not going to have to try so hard. The great thing is when we get home, uh, it'll be intuitive to us. There won't be this internal resistance. There won't be the selfishness that keeps us from reaching out to others. There won't be the sin out there that distracts us. We'll all be made right. But now we fight the battle. It's only going to last a little longer, and then it's all over. Let's stay in the battle. Fight the battle while you've got it right here and carrying one another's burdens and helping us to love one another as Jesus Christ has loved us. Let us pray. Father, thank you so much for the calling of the gospel. Thank you for saving us, reconciling us to our Father in heaven. And thank you for reconciling us to one another. We pray that we may live it out. And I pray for my brothers here today, some of whom have relationships that have gone awry, even within the church, and are trying to figure out how to get it right. Some of whom have friends who are at odds with each other and are wondering, how can I enter in and help these brothers? Some of whom are in churches that are struggling with disunity in their presence and wondering, what can I do? Lord, teach us how to pray. The same prayer that Jesus prayed in John 17. To pray to you to bring unity and love and truthfulness to your church. And then, Lord, help us to learn from Jesus Christ how to intervene with one another, that we may be peacemakers, so that we are walking in the steps of the Prince of Peace himself. Lord, help us to delight in seeing your family come together and worship you as one body, giving praise to Almighty God. And Lord, may our hope abound. May it become stronger with every year that we live. May we be able with the imagination, the minds and the hearts that you've given us to set our minds on the things that are above, not the things that are on the earth that we may be the fruitful servants in this generation that you've called us to be. We make our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.